I'm Charlie Taylor. I'm Ben Carter. I run hip hop by the numbers on Twitter. I use hip hop statistics to highlight the bigger picture. My intro to the fifth element, or highlight the fifth element hip hop, which is knowledge. And this is how we do. From 2018 to. You think I should know, right? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> You're getting old, that's the problem, bro. Once you start getting older, you just forget mm, yeah. what, what year shit, shit happened. It all kind of melts yeah. in with each other. Mm. It can get worse. Yeah. Sure. Can't wait. Hi, Ben. As you eat, Ben. My best two this week. Yeah, this week. I've got a great lighter note, actually. I've got a really... This might be my best... Well, it's not my best lighter note. I've had better, but it might be my best one this year. But absolutely got into a lot of albums this week. Let me see where I put them on because it was a big week. There was a lot of music that came out. Uh, D2X dropped Hotel 1105. The way that I would describe this album is if you take a Rockefeller roster member and then put them over the top of just jazz, jazz instrumentals. That's what I get from D2X. And I really rate him, man. I rate him highly. I think he's a very engaging MC. The way that he talks, it's just like he's talking to you. But the instrumentals that he chooses, and sometimes he just allows these like jazz stretches to just carry on after he's finished with his vocals. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I really enjoyed the album a lot. Um, I talked to him quite a lot on Twitter. He's a nice guy. And... It's always nice when someone that you're talking to on Twitter is also really, really good at hip hop. Like a lot of the time you talk to people and they're not that great and you're like, oh, I don't really want to promote you that much, but you're a good person. But yeah, D2X, great person, great, great artist, great album. Recommend checking that out. Uh, Digger D dropped back to square one and I didn't like it that much. I did not like it as much as I feel like it was like two years ago we put out an album that I had really close to maybe it was in my top five of the year. Maybe it was 2021. I can't remember exactly what album it was. But this feels like a bit of a step down. I'm not really sure what's going on. There's a track on here. I think it's on this album where he says, fuck drill. Um, and I, I feel like he did kind of take it like, uh, let me just see where it was. Um, I think it was on this album. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, fuck drill. Yeah, so fuck that, drill's on there. So I kind of felt like he was trying to distance himself a little bit. Uh, sonically, I don't think his content was that much different. It's just, you know, frank, honest, open storytelling, which is one of his hallmarks. But the production choices were different. Like, there were some really different tracks on here, some really, like, early to mid-2000s beats, kind of updated a little bit with a little bit of that drill sound and that drill bass in it. Ah, oh, it's it an odd mix. Like, I didn't hate the album. It's not like I really disliked it, but I guess I'm kind of used to... UK artists of this ilk just dropping incredible bodies of work and maybe this was just a step below that. I'm not saying it's bad. Maybe an 8 out of 7 out of 10. Um, but yeah, it was just a bit... I'm not really sure. I need to look at the backstory around the album and see what he said in interviews because I'd be curious. Uh, Burner Boy dropped I Told Them. Look, I'm not going to say I'm the biggest Burner Boy fanatic ever and I don't know his back catalogue like the back of my hand, but this did feel a little bit poppier to me than his previous two records. 
Um, the track with Dave, I did not like at all. I did not enjoy that. I thought Dave was a bit static at the end of it. His flow was very one-dimensional. Um, the track with 21 Savage, I, I didn't particularly like 21 Savage on there. But again, it's similar to the Digger D album where it's a seven and a half, eight out of 10. It's just that I'm used to Burner Boy putting out albums that are 10 out of 10 to me. So yeah, it's good. Like, don't get me wrong. As I say, it's an enjoyable listen. It's it's a bop at times, but yeah, it felt a little bit more poppy. I'm not really sure why that is. Test, tested, approved, and trusted. That was my favorite track. That's very fucking catchy. And Burner Boy can do pop. Don't don't like. I'm not acting like he's not allowed to do pop. It just that was just an observation I made. But I enjoyed it. Rizza was on here. Jizza opened it up. Um, that was legendary when I saw that on the track list. I'm like, wait, what? Jizz is on here? Like, it's fucking, yeah. So shout out, shout out Burner Boy for that. DJ Muggs, Soul Assassin 3. Holy fucking shit. Fucking amazing. I tweeted out the, uh, the feature list and I just said, this is the greatest. And it might, it's definitely the greatest feature list of the year. Might be of the decade. Um, if you're curious as to who's on it, I can't sit here and list them all off because it would just, the podcast would go on endlessly. Um, but man, fucking amazing. Baldy James set it off with the second track. I really enjoyed that. Ghostface and Westside Gone on Sicilian Gold was great. Rock Marciano, Rome Streets on 67 Keys was great. CeeLo Green on Joker's Wild was amazing. Shout out CeeLo Green. Scarface Freddie Gibbs on Street Made was so good. Like he's just putting really interesting people. He put Evidence and Domo Genesis together. Um, then he put Rock Marciano and Crime Apple later. Then he put Method Man and Slick Rick together. Like, that's also part of it. You know, that's why DJ Khaled fails every fucking time because he's just like, who can we get? Who's the biggest artist in the world? Don't care about the sound. Don't care about the chemistry. Don't care about creating something unique and interesting. Just put fucking Eminem and Kanye on the same song. Doesn't matter if it's shit. This album, it feels like he got the biggest artists for me in the world. Like, this was my most exciting uh, track list. But he really thought about, you know, Be Real, Ice Cube, MC Ren to finish it like that's amazing so yeah now shout out dj Marks. he always drops fucking great projects nick caution nick's tape yeah man just fuck some some brooklyn MCing, some brooklyn MCing. uh enjoyed it a lot it's very short something like eight tracks or something open mic eagle um very good project as well highly recommend it always down for some open mic eagle danger mouse gemini the gifted uh born again like i've never listened to gemini before and uh, i'm probably not going to listen to him again that's not to say that he's bad i just didn't i didn't vibe with him it wasn't it wasn't what i yeah i, I didn't enjoy it that much it's one of the lower tier danger mouse collaborations and they collaborated back in the early 2000s as well um i don't think we've done an episode on danger mouse uh we definitely spoke about him on the mf doom episode um but i'd be very curious to do an episode on him he might be a good one for neighbors actually um, but yeah, I didn't particularly enjoy Gemini that much on this record. Um, but the beats are great. Beats are fucking amazing. Jabuki, all who can't hear must feel. I've never listened to him before. Fucking bop, 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 straight up bop. Um, I forget what the track I put on. BBC. Charlie, what do you think BBC stands for? I can't even see right now. I've got it. You're probably eating. It stands for Bad Bitch Coochie. And that's what he just... No, I was just I was just staring at you through the screen. Hopefully you would have got it, but yeah, I was just staring at you. But yeah, yeah, I missed. Did I, not think it was that. No, no it, it's called bad. It's about bad bitch coochie. 
Um, that is, the album's fun, man. It's genuinely fun. It's a bop. There's so much. There's like dancey instrumentals on here. I, I enjoyed it immensely. So I hope I've pronounced their name correctly. If I haven't, I apologized. Um, and that's it. That's all I got into this week. Uh, it was a long week with, with records, but yeah, man, it was, it was an interesting week. It was an interesting week. What about yourself, Charlie? Yeah, decent variety, I guess. So in terms of, uh, just uh, what we've spun individually and, um, how it, how they compare. Um, so I get to a lot of EPs actually, a lot of EPs or, or EP length projects, uh, as we will surely get to, um, where did we get to? Where did we get to? Uh, John Glacier, um, and uh, I forget. Uh, I think Surf Gang, um, JG, SG, get it? Because that's their initials. Um, yeah, little EP, quick little EP. John Glacier, if you don't remember, made a couple of waves a couple of years ago um, by being a woman with a stage name that you would assume would be a dude. But then you listen to it, it's like, oh, wow, it's a woman, oh, oh yeah, it's a version, right? And um, yeah, it's good, it's solid. Um, she has this kind of, um, reminds you of like a Lexamore, uh, where they do that kind of like, uh, you know, just talking, uh, talking voice in some ways, and has this, uh, you know, slight groan to it, I guess. Uh, don't know how to word it, don't know how else to word that. <clears throat> but yeah. It's a very interesting project and uh, really well produced. Really appreciate that. Uh, Terrace Mine, James Fauntleroy, Nova, Bangers, love this. My favorite. This is my favorite type of Terrace Martin. Uh, we've just got that smooth, soulful, jazzy R&B essence. Saxophone blaring at every opportunity. We are here for that every freaking day. James Fauntleroy, great voice. As always, you got uh, also Robert Glasper, Chief of Dewa, here as well. Really good features on top of it. And yeah, it's just six tracks, and it's a really beautiful piece. Really beautiful piece. Just under 22 minutes. Really beautiful EP. And uh, who knows? Oh, oh, Terrace Martin might be on the Triple Crown watch list uh, for the end of the year list. Who knows? Uh, Chip Wickham. Uh, which I spelt wrong several times because I didn't know where to put the H, but the H is at the back end of it, not the start. Um, love and Life. Uh, it's been spinning Chip Wickham for a few years, and uh, he just always comes with this really, really earnest and really uh, just beautiful composition, jazz compositions. Um, he just, uh, it's, it's, it's really soft, it really hugs you, it's really warm. Um, yeah, it's just a really nice vibe, really nice uh, music to listen to. And uh, yeah, knocks out the park once again with this little EP, little care package, and it's just under half an hour. Really, really good in the in the alley of EPs this year. Um, El Sweatshirt and the Alchemist. Voyardia? I, I, I don't know how to say that first bit, but V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E. Um, I said to Ben, this is probably my favourite Earl projects um to date um i will say i haven't listened to his you know first two albums uh recently um but i do remember joining doris a lot but um yeah i feel like this this one just came it, it hit me it hit me uh, in this in the way that i feel Earl hasn't hit me um lyrically over the years uh where i either don't really 
uh, absorb it properly or um, for whatever reason. But everyone's just like, oh, no, 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 this is great. Oh, it was great. Oh, no, no, no. I'm like, I know he's technically gifted, right? And I get that. I, you know, I understand, like, I understand why he's good, right? I'm not stupid. Um, but just that, I guess, that personal connection where I'm just like, where he says something and it actually hits me. You know what I mean? And uh, I feel like I got that a few times during this uh, EP, question mark. Um, Alchemist also come through with um, amazing production, and that's pretty, pretty clean uh, throughout. Um, but yeah, it just has these moments where um, he just says something, and I'm just like, ooh, ooh, hold on, stop that, rewind. What was that? Damn. Just in, just in one lines, maybe two lines, and it's just like, ah, that's sticky. I like it. I like it. Very sticky. Um, but yeah, really good project. Really good project. Thoroughly enjoyed it. If it's an, if it's an EP, ladies and gentlemen, let me know and uh, invite me to the EP list. Who knows? Uh, Nappy High, friend of Ivy Nappy High, comes through with Menace, uh, currently on Bandcamp as we record. Um, but yeah, what can I say about Nappy High that I haven't said already? <laughs> it just doesn't miss. Production doesn't miss. Um, I will say now that I actually looked at the um, track list for both. I will say uh, the DJ Mugs, um, you know, tops him just a little bit. But you know, I feel like Nappy High does have a very respectable. Oh, you've um, called on respectable there. You've called on feature that. list. I've called on it. You know, I was, I, I can't. There's there's not a there's not an MC Ren, uh, Ice Cube and. Um, uh, and be real, like type thing on here, but this is good. But regardless, you know, Ray Quan and Westside Gun on one track, Mick Jenkins, Yoro Drugan Blue, Memnock, uh, Baldy James actually coming through with a verse that doesn't Ooh, make me sleep. I liked it, outstanding. Who knew? Nappy High, how'd you do it? How did you do it? I can't believe it. Um, I was just, I, was, I actually felt energized by the end of it. Uh, Benny on Eisenhower, absolutely fire. Um, Eloquent comes through with some good production as well, co-production. Uh, Mick Jenkins again, uh, Blue, Brian Bars Burns, Jay Worthy, uh, per- Polyester the Saint and G Pericon one track. That was mm. really good. And uh, and in between those are just really unique and on point production from Nappy High, and I fucking love it. The just the the uh just sounds so good it just it just sounds so freaking good and uh it just really just elevates me every time uh so yeah shout out to Nappy Hi once again outstanding piece of work um and lastly diggity back to square one i i i actually appreciate the fact that he's kind of just not doing the same thing um i don't know if the album you were talking about previously was Norton Crosses um his previous one that had like the you know the 50 cent track um, I remember. I remember that very vividly. Um, either that or made in the Pyrex, which is his first. He was made in the Pyrex. Had, uh, bringing it back on it. Is, he was made in the Pyrex. Yeah, yeah. And that was obviously Strap a Drill album, right? But you know, in the re- in the projects since, um, he's you know f- he's gone further and further away from that. There's a couple of drilly tracks here, um, but yeah, like you said, far from the norm. Uh, very much the minority on that front in terms of, uh, in terms of tone. But he also talks about similar things. Um, I will say, I don't know the numbers to this, um, but uh, it feels like for this album, uh, you know, less ears per minute. Less. I think um, it was less. Less per minute. 
That's a good EPM. actually statistic to do. That euros per minute. That's actually not the worst. Yeah, who, thing. who has the, who has what else has the most? Because I feel like um, I feel oh. like it's a. I feel like at least some of them feel like it's a badge of honor to just do it as much as possible. I'm, I'm writing that um, down right yeah, now. Let's, I'm going to do that analysis when I'm stoned. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I liked it. I'll, and the thing, the thing is, I feel when it comes to, you know, drill-rooted artists, I'll say, because he obviously doesn't do drill anymore, basically, at this point. Fuck drill. Um, is that he... <laughs> fuck drill, right? Um, is that he is doing things he's doing different things and if he keeps it in that i'm going to give it at least one spin that's guaranteed because i like his voice i like what he i like what is his subject matter um i like it right um some of the hooks on this one was a bit near um that uh that loonies uh sample yeah. especially the hook on that no. uh ben mentioned that off wax was just this is not hitting it's terrible um but Hey man, I, I I respect the fact that he keeps doing it differently, because um, he he probably easily could just be keep doing drill and you know and he'll probably be fine, um, but he's doing things he's doing it different every time so far, and uh, if he keeps doing that, I'm gonna keep listening because I wanna I wanna see how he how he changes up. It's it's a it's an interesting artistic experiment, and I appreciate that. So big ups to Diggity. Uh, but with that said. We shall to our topic for this episode, which is all about the souls of mischief. Um, and they actually just recently finished. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you want to call it a world tour, but I know they were in Europe. Um, I'm assuming they did America as well, so at least those two continents. Um, and you know, they just got off doing that, and uh, I feel there was a lot of positive, a lot, a lot of positivity thrown towards the group um more more than most and i found that quite fascinating because you know i feel like there's groups it's like souls of mischief that were around they were around the same times uh you know like the likes of far side slum village etc and i feel like souls of mischief get the least guess out of the bunch right um Maybe I'm wrong, but um, yeah, I just feel like until this year where um, they were doing uh, obviously a anniversary um, of uh, their first album and doing a tour based on it, uh, I didn't really, I don't usually hear Souls of Mischief that much apart from obviously the Noble track, Night Free to Infinity. Um, everything else, I just it, it just goes by the wayside and uh, I, you know, it's, it's they're obviously not one hit wonders because we're going to get into the albums and you know majority of them are very very good high quality um but it's it's just that track right it's just it's just that track that people talk about um but uh you know there's plenty obviously more to them obviously they're um very heavily affiliated with uh hieroglyphics um and the well not the crew and the label um and you know they, they go off that and uh yeah, it's just uh, if you if you're about those lot, then obviously you know Souls of Mischief down to a T. Because I feel like if you're into hieroglyphics, you're into hieroglyphics, and that's it. <laughs> that's your thing. I I'm it, my name is my name is John, and I like hieroglyphics. You know what I mean? That's just, that's entirely someone's personality. Um, but yeah, we're doing Souls of Mischief for this uh, for this particular episode. Uh, we might do hieroglyphics at some point. Um, because they do have a couple of collective albums out, so that'd be kind of interesting. 
Obviously, the other Funky Homo sapien we haven't done yet as well, so that'd be cool. Uh, but for now, Souls of Mischief. Ben, what have you got for us? Yeah, Souls of Mischief. I, uh, I've never listened to them before, um, and I think you're 100% right in terms of, you know, when or in America. So I, I see them as a very localized group, and it, it's kind of indicative of what happened, you know, all the way up until the mid-2000s in hip-hop, where it was very localized, very localized sound, very localized fan bases. Um, but... They're one of the rare acts who have actually kept alongside them a devoted following through 30 years, bro. 30 years, that's a massive, you know, from the moment their iconic debut album dropped, the group has held a special place in hip-hop and their journey through the decades is a powerful study, I think at least, in how to grow and then perpetually maintain a dedicated following. In 2014, speaking to Hip Hop DX, A Plus said, we make music on an organic nature more than the regular record company schedule. That whole everybody will forget about you if you don't make an album every year thing doesn't really apply to us because we have a weird slash cult following. It's like, dude, whenever you put it out, I got you. And, you know, we spoke a little bit about it in the Mortal, Mortal Technique episode where he was saying it's easy to get famous and successful. And Dr. Dre said it to Kendrick on Good Kid Mad City. You know, anyone can get it. It's keeping it. It's the hard part. And that's what Souls of Mischief have done. You know, they flip their major label situation into a lifelong following all through ridiculously hard work, and of course a debut album that will remain in the hip-hop collective consciousness forever. You know, this is the 30th anniversary of that record this year, and it's still fresh in everyone's memory when discussing classic, at least songs from that era, if not albums. You know, I, I it's hard because cause the song is the album, you know, it's the title track. You know, I was like, when researching for this, and there was, I think it was in Spin or one of them, there's an oral history of 1993 till infinity, I thought they were going to do the album, but they weren't. They were talking about the song. And a lot of the, uh, you know, the sources are talking about the song and not the album, which is interesting. But underpinning their success and their stability as a group has been their friendship. To Jai met A-plus in kindergarten, and the two began rhyming together at just eight years old. Um, Festo would come into the fold during junior high. He and Jai would become best friends, which led to Jai introducing him to the group in middle school. Uh, Opium was the final member to join. A-plus brought him into the group in high school. So Festo told, told uh, Hip Hop DX back in 2014 how central this friendship has been to their continued success. He said A-plus and Jai. Uh, we've known each other since what kindergarten and that pretty much goes for everyone in Hyro. I came along a little later but when I came along it wasn't like I was joining a rap crew I came along as a friend and then we figured out that we had this mutual interest in hip-hop our friendship is where it all started it's more like a family now and that will become more obvious as I you know talk about some quotes especially into the 2010s and 2020s uh, right at the end and it, it kind of ties the whole thing up because honestly that has been the thing that's underpinned uh, Souls of Mistress and hieroglyphics the entire time. You know, it's this, um, just this friendship that's that's like endured for such long. I mean, this isn't 30 years of friendship. This is an entire life of friendship. They met each other in kindergarten. Like, that's crazy. So the genesis of their classic debut album can be traced right back to their own experiences growing up in East Oakland. Behind the Beat did a brilliant piece on the album. I'm going to quote it regularly. Growing up almost, uh, sorry, growing up, growing up amongst turmoil, impressed upon A plus the need for everyone to have a safe space, somewhere that you can retreat to when the world becomes overwhelming or even dangerous, where you can recuperate and prepare yourself and, and rest. And I'll read this quote from the article. Um, it says, 
Having grown up around the city's 82nd Avenue, an area where locals drove around with powerful subwoofers that sent shockwaves through the block, but also a place where carjacking, shootings, and police harassment were regular occurrences, A Plus and MC, and also the group's lead producer, said the souls understood the importance of safe spaces. They therefore wanted Oaklanders to be able to press play and for 4 minutes and 45 seconds be able to escape the pressures of a Californian city that registered a record high 175 homicides in 1992. Now it's tempting to arrive at A Plus as a front man. You know, he produces plenty of the tracks of their debut album. He's often the voice that publications seek when they interview in the group, but he's very quick to, de- quick to deflect that love back on the collective. Even though A-plus produced their breakout hit song, the title track from their album, and had the vision. Now, I don't want to fixate on him too much, but it'd be like trying to discuss 36 Chambers without focusing on Riz's sampling and production, because A-plus was profoundly inspired by the music his parents brought into their household. And he said that pretty much every single genre was accounted for, uh, ska, R&B, reggae, rock, rap, and of course, rap is the light inspired A plus to pick up a microphone and to complete the brace. The message, of course, you know, I, I would love. I could probably just go back and search through all our episodes and find how many people have been inspired to pick up a microphone after listening to Rapper's Delight on the message is, is freaking wild. So A-plus found a shared love of hip-hop with T'Jai, and according to OK Player, the two created their first song, which was a Run DMC-inspired song, and they hit a niche because their early work actually earned them time with Sir Jinx and even an audition with Eazy-E. Um, A-plus even said Eazy-E liked them, and it's a short leap, but a lot of hard work from popping up in auditions with Eazy-E to crafting the hieroglyphics and I, I wouldn't mind doing an episode on them. I've actually already written an episode on them. Um, I anticipated that we would do one at some point because I think it's interesting and I wouldn't mind doing Dell as well. Um, maybe Dell before hieroglyphics, I'm not sure. But, you know, it's, it's impossible to... You can't split Souls of Mischief and hieroglyphics. They're, you know, they're the, the lifeblood of that group and that group has endured, absolutely. And hit a new peak in the 2000s as well, which is crazy. And we'll talk about it when we get to that episode. Um but uh, I think it was A+. Yeah, A+, said this um, about the hieroglyphics. He said, The hieroglyphics were all united by the idea of telling stories that pushed our people down a safe path. But although the souls were trying to make positive rap, it was important we did it without being corny. We were still going to talk our shit and stand our ground. And that's true. I've never, ever in my life listened to a soul song and been like, that was mad corny. Like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel that way. This was a mid-80s, so, you know, we can think of the hieroglyphics similar to how we think about uh, the native tongues, what they were doing in New York. Now, I would argue, I don't know if this is true, it just feels true from listening to, you know, music from that time, uh, that the New York hip-hop scene was a little more experimental, even at that early stage, than the West Coast. And I think that gave groups like Dila and Tribe the chance to really push through a new sound. I never felt like Souls of Mistress were trying to do anything drastic sonically on their debut album. I think they recognized the place to meaningfully position their message in front of most people was through their lyrics. You know, reviewers also note that the album was unique in its emotional content, tackling far more nuanced topics than the rest of the region had been doing in the mainstream thus far. But before all this, of course, it had to get signed. And unsigned the group was earning recognition their music was being played regularly on local radio shows Vesto said that Tupac and uh, Too Short were actually early attendees of the group shows by the time Dell 
got signed to Electra, the group were earning widespread acclaim. The Quietus piece directly attributes Dell's deal to Sol's eventual deal. And Tajai sort of confirmed it during a Reddit AMA a few years ago. Uh, he was asked the question, did Dell being cousins with Ice Cube help launch or propel your career in any way? And his response was, yes, it got us signed. Dell put us on the B-side uh, and that's what got us signed. No Cube, no Dell, no Souls as far as the world knowing. So according to Pitchfork, there was a bidding war for the group's signature and this gave him leverage. Apparently it was Opio's stepfather who negotiated Jive into ceding publishing rights to the group. And according to Pitchfork, Opio's stepfather is actually the attorney who got Ice Cube out of his Ruthless Records contract. So that Ice Cube connection that Tajai was speaking about was, you know, he was bearing fruit, absolutely. And their deal with Jive made perfect sense. This was a label who oversaw Schooly D, Cool Mo D, DJ Jazzy Jeff, BDP, Too Short, like West Coast royalty, East Coast legends too. They released Tribe's debut album and it paved the way for groups like Souls and Mistress to proceed into the mainstream. And so they locked in. And A Plus told the source this uh, when he talked about like how they felt around that album, like how they approached recording it and committing to it um, he said originally we had a song we were working on in high school 91 till infinity never really got finished and recorded so when we ended up in the studio in 92 we were about halfway done with that so we finished that one decided on 92 till infinity but we knew the album wasn't coming out till 93 so we named it 93 till infinity but it was a concept we had from before for us what it meant was till infinity it's not like we were thinking way ahead and had the foresight to see it ahead 20 years we were still in high school really young and excited the sense was for it to go on forever this was our shot and so we wanted to make it count and they actually did that like that's wild and that's how you feel i guess when you're in high school you think everything is going to last forever and everything because you've only lived 15 20 years of your life a year feels like a lot but you know when you're 30 40 it doesn't feel like that much at all so it's just endured man it's absolutely experience ben yes yes experience so yeah man then and that was a debut album 93 till infinity if you want to talk about charlie yeah i think the um there's an overriding point uh i feel like i want to make just uh just just for the, I guess, the entire body of work, but also most notably for Night 3 to Infinity, it, which is that if they never said they were from Oakland, where would you think they were from? West Coast, for sure. I don't know, though. Really? Yeah, I think so. Well, you think they're okay. more East Coast? You think they're more boom bappy? I, I mean, there's this... It's like they have a... Like the, I feel like there's some there's some influences here that are mainly East Coast, and I struggle to feel the West Coastness of this. I think I'm it's because of the it jazz. I think it's because of the jazz. Like yeah. as I said yeah. earlier, do you feel yeah. like the West Coast was as experimental as the East Coast in the eighties? Because I don't feel that way at all. Like I feel like the West Coast was finding its footing. And in that space, they were yeah. like creating the same kind of music over again and again and again, not in a bad way, but like, you know, yeah. Tribe was revolutionary. There was nothing like Tribe in the West Coast, but Souls of Mischief were kind of like Tribe. You know, they had that jazz rap element. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. Tribe is a very notable one, I feel like, needs yeah. to be mentioned there. But I also get a bit of like Dust FX yeah. as well. Um, just of how they how they rap, especially during this album, this particular album, um, they kind of I think 
uh, mellow out over the years. Um, but this one, they're just they, you could tell how just young they are. It's such a young person album in just how they're just jumping about on the mic. Basically, it just sounds like they're jumping on a trampoline while rapping. It's just, they're that excited. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, just, yeah. it's so it's so there's this real under underrated joy to it. Um, which also reminds me of like also the far side um as well um but yeah uh you know the, i feel like there's just so many uh if you want to call it influencing or if you want to be cynical biting right from this um but with that said um i struggle to find a a more consistent hip hop album <laughs> um i i can listen to this just looped and is it's just sublime, honestly. Uh, it's also an album, I and I think overall, to be honest, where I don't actually, I don't actually actively listen to the lyrics that hard. Um, I don't know if that's just be- because the production just has, excuse me, just has um, such a, uh, just feels really effervescent and just fresh. I'm into it, um, and. The, the lyrics are just there for me. It's just, it's, it, I feel, I, I guess, uh, I don't know if it sounds cynical calling it window dressing, but um, that's kind of just how I see it. Um, if I went down and read the lyrics, I'd probably gain something more from it, of course, because that's why they're there, right? But, <laughs> but I'm kind of just fine. I'm fine with just listening to it and not exactly, uh, and not exactly getting that uh, attached. Uh, to what they're saying or etc etc because it just feels fun you know what I mean um I guess in terms of if you want to compare them to something like Tribe I guess Tribe has that one up where the lyrics are also infectious and very quotable um and I don't probably I guess I don't get that from from Souls of Mischief um but with that said um I feel like the album is just so damn consistent I, uh, I i struggle to find a bad track i struggle to find a part i didn't really i didn't enjoy um i enjoyed it just from start to finish it's really tight um it's really well sequenced and yeah it's just a really beautifully crafted album um especially from a production standpoint yeah absolutely and you know that album title was so so evocative you know that it went through two prior iterations i think is even more potent um because i think what it says to me is this is our year like we start now and what we create here will last for eternity and i don't necessarily think it meant we will last for eternity i think it meant what we do right now will last for eternity and it absolutely will and it's normally a fleeting sentiment you know it's something you feel in the moment when you make a change or have a true breakthrough and souls of mischief had to wait two years to plant their flag they started this in 91 but when their chance finally came they accepted it absolutely and i think the joy of a lot of records from the early 90s that have persisted actually kind of comes from the rawness of the sound it's almost like the antithesis of what major labels were pushing into the limelight you know master a spoke about it that he wanted to make the chronic but he didn't have the required ingredients so he went grittier mystic styles is objectively mixed horribly in comparison to everything else like it is not it sounds like it's on cassette on fucking spotify but that album is endured it's the three six album that has endured and 93 till infinity 
It needed a sound like 93 to make that album title stick, and it did, and largely thanks to how poor A-plus was when he was building the sound of the production. He told Spin for the 20th anniversary of the title track, he said, back then we didn't have any money, people did odd jobs, this and that, so I didn't have a whole bunch of money to buy records, but I did whenever I could. I found this particular record. It's Billy Cobham album called Crosswinds. At that point, it wasn't one of the hot records for people to sample. It didn't cost hell of money. It was in the dollar bin. I just grabbed it when I got home. I listened to the sample. I used to listen to my samples on 45 because I didn't have that much sampling time in my sampler. It was some cheap shit. The record is a little gritty, but listening to it on 45, I was like, oh, this would be dope. I'm going to make it up tempo. And the song took off, man. It flew up to 72 on the Hot 100, number 11 on US rap tracks, uh, also charted on US R- US R&B chart and the US dance chart. And this would help push the album to 85 and the Billboard 200, which sounds modest right now. But back in 93, hip-hop was still finding its commercial footing. There'd really only been a handful of top 10 albums up till that point. Now, the piece in The Quietest places a lot of the commercial success at the feet of Jive, whom they say never get the accolades Def Jam and Tommy Boy get. In terms of hip-hop, um, you know, that was the level they were operating at. And I went through their discography and it absolutely was. You know, Drive had already helped Two Short sell fuckloads of music. I'll read a direct quote from the article. Um, it said, Souls and Mistress had the beats and the microphone skills to carve out their own niche. The promotion and the marketing muscle of a well-placed major ready to feed their music into the system. The friends and family support network that also functioned as a means of signaling their uh, authenticity to fans keen to check out for any new rap acts provenance. And they came from a culture that was strong yet little known, thus giving the group both a vibrant tradition to grow their talents within it and an exciting story to tell to the world's press. It was a strong package, but a lot of artists could say the same. Where many fell down was with that all-important first single. And of course, in those days when MTV and BET could be the difference between stratospheric success and failure, it's accompanying video. Um, so apparently, uh, they uh, they got Michael Lucero as director. Now, he's worked with Digital Underground and KRS-One. This is for the video. And he would go on to work with icons like Genuine and Queen Latifah. And he took a risk. He took a massive risk. Um, it was one that was endorsed by the band, but certainly a brave risk. Rap videos at the time were full of rap video stereotypes. Um, you know, you know them. We watch many video, rap videos. We know what they look like. And rather than lean into those, uh, the director took them out into the woods and he made a different kind of Californian video. And Festo told Spin, people think California. I don't think they realize how many different kinds of microclimates we have out here. I mean, this is, this is some high-level shit. Festo in their first video is talking about microclimates. That's not what they talk about normally in rap videos. So he says there's beach, there's snow, there's mountains, there's desert. We've got a metropolitan, urban, inner city. That's where the concept came from. And that was the late, great Michael Lucero who directed that video. He came up with the concept, what he saw visually from the audio. When he listened to the song, that's what he came up with. Now, a lot of publications I've read point to the video as being indicative of how Souls of Mischief came into the scene with this video. They offered something familiar to their audience, but also something unique from all their peers. The sound of the album, I feel, is firmly rooted in the 1980s. The mixing is warm, it's inviting. The whole album feels like a big hug for anyone familiar with 1980s hip-hop. And since it came out in 93, their entire audience was familiar with 1980s hip-hop. So they were all engaged. And from there, their lyrical palette expanded, and this created the basis of their point of difference from their peers. I'll read this section from The Quietus. Because, you know, you remember, like, yes, they were doing jazz rap in an era in West Coast where gangster rap, G-Funk, was on top. 
But Native Tongues have been doing that since the late 80s. So it, it, it existed already, like jazz rap existed. They weren't tribe, they weren't dealer. Um, so they had to do something a little bit different to really set themselves aside. And it was a lyrical content. And the piece from The Quietest, um, it says, the album's title track remains a song for which the band will be forever identified. The tune they won't be allowed to leave a stage without playing, even if there's rap give gigs in the afterlife. It's one of the greatest four minutes in hip hop history, a magical and powerfully emotive combination of vocal dexterity and musical inspiration. It was definably and definitely all of their own work. Domino wasn't involved, the producer here was A+, and as a fascinating 20th anniversary interview by Emmanuel CM published early this year by XXL Reveals, it had its roots in an earlier different demo, which meant a very great deal to the band. That emotional investment is clear and unmistakable, and it's a secret source that fuels their masterpiece. You know, you think about, yes, they had deep emotional content as well, but just their dexterity. Like a lot of the reviews that I've read from just listeners, not from publications, talk about just how fucking incredible they were as MCs. Um, just how mind-bending their flows were and, and, you know, multis and all sorts of things. You know, it was not common in West Coast at that time. And that's why I would say... If I were to be like, well, yeah, they do sound West Coast, but lyrically and vocally, they sound a little bit more like East Coast. Um, it's a brilliant album, man. It, it genuinely is. It, it doesn't get the accolades I think it deserves. It doesn't get the... I think, I just, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, having read so much and watched so many interviews, more so than any other group or, or artist we've ever done, the fact that their biggest song is also the name of their album, I feel like that actually hurt them a little bit. Because whenever you talk about 93 till infinity, because I even I was reading out a quote earlier, and I actually, while I was reading, and I'm like, oh, they're talking about the album. And then they said, it's a great four and a half minutes. I'm like, okay, so they're talking about the song. Like, it, it's very hard to delineate the two. And I think that that kind of hurt the legacy of the album. I don't know how you feel about that. That's just how I feel. Uh, I guess. Um I don't know. I never thought about that. Like, let's if uh, we put it in a different context. Let's say Fifty Cent's best song was "Get Rich or Die Trying," and it was his debut album, "Get Rich or Die Trying." So every time someone said the words "Get Rich or Die Trying," you're like, "Are you talking about the song? Or are you talking about the album? Like, what what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, if Many Men was called "Get Rich or Die Trying," it kind of fucked the narrative up a little bit. I think. Right. But 93 to Infinity is the best song on that track, so... On the I, album. I, I just, I, I, yeah, on the album, yeah. so... Um, but I, I get I get it makes a confusion, yeah. um, but I wouldn't say, for me personally, that would be like, oh, yeah, just... It, it, it just... It doesn't seem like there's... <laughs> it doesn't seem like a loss would happen there where just because people might get confused whether you might be talking about the song on the album... Yeah. Um, I guess the issue is that people think of the song first mm. and not the album first. Then sure, I guess. Um, but I I can't imagine that not being more enticing. Where, um, yeah, where the best song is the title track. Um, I'm trying to think of other albums where that's happened. I'm googling um, Digital Underground right now. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm just trying to yeah, but you know. I mean, look, I, I don't, I don't know how that could be an issue. <laughs> Sex Packets is a great album. The Humpty Dance is a great. Do what you like, great song. 
you know, if the album was called Do What You Like and the song was called Do What You Like, or the album was called Humpty Dance and the song was called Humpty Dance. Yeah, I, I don't know. But I'm just trying to find out a reason because the album is fucking perfect. It's brilliant. But I feel like people don't talk about it anywhere near as much as, as you said, Farside or Digital Underground or so many other groups around that time. I, I don't know why. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, let's hop on to the second album. We'll think about that um, as we go. Um, yeah, No Man's Land. Um, I feel like this is... <laughs> honestly, I feel like this is uh, just as good as the first album. The only issue is it doesn't have 93 Till on it. <laughs> it's literally it. <laughs> it's so simple for me. I'm just like, I really like this album. I really like. I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, again, consistent as hell. Um, a little bit, I guess, a little bit of like, a little bit more cloudy. You know what I mean? Not as um, not as jumping on a trampoline description I gave it previously. A little bit more, just a tad bit more mature. Um, but still them. And still good, still very consistent. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't have 93 till on it. And that's literally the only markdown you could po- I could possibly give it. Um, because I feel like these two albums are just so consistent. Um, and I played them, you know, one after the other. And it just really felt, just really felt solid to me. Um, yeah, just, I, w- I will say, by the way, uh, the album covers for these albums are just... Uh, uh, not great on average, but uh, yeah, that's just me. I don't even. I'm gonna look. Up right there. I wonder if a bad album cover actually hurts that much. I, uh, I mean, a good album cover it helps a lot for me. Like sometimes I just listen to an album because, like, if I, if someone suggests me an artist or whatever, or if I just find a related artist, um, in my discoveries. If I like the look of the work, if I look, if I like the look of the artwork, I'm, it's going to be an increased chance I'll give it a spin. Um, there's been plenty of artists where that's happened, where I just see the artwork and I'm like, you know what? That seems all right. Let's give it a spin. <laughs> and, you know, well, Fuck most, most times it works. So, Yeah, the album cover for this looks like I made it in fucking Gravit or something. Just doesn't look great. It looks like online. <laughs> just, just Microsoft Word like, yeah. uh, type of, type yeah. of shit. I don't know. It's just like, yeah. Early PowerPoint, whatever that is, whatever yeah. year that was. Yeah, well, this Graphic album design is my passion. This album number one hundred and eleven on the Billboard two hundred, which is very acceptable after charting eighty five with their debut. Um, a plus, likely. Uh, well, I mean, he doesn't produce as much on this record, and maybe that, maybe that's why. I don't, I don't know, but I, I like it. I'm, I'm similar with you. I feel like it just needed that one song to push it over the top. And didn't have it, unfortunately. Um, but aside from that, uh, Red Bull Music Academy wrote back in 2014. Unfortunately, many rap fans' fascination with Souls of Mischief rarely extends beyond 93 till infinity, which is exactly what we're talking about. Finding effusive praise for the group's well-intentioned but creatively thwarted and under-promoted 95 follow-up No Man's Land is unlikely as Paramount clearing the Bob James sample on their forever unofficially released song Cab Fair. Now, A-plus likely spawned the comment about being creatively thwarted in his 2009 interview with Hip Hop DX. So he said, We're some purest hip-hop kids. We were listening to hip-hop before there were separate genres within it. So the first time we ever felt any pressure to do anything outside of what we were doing was working on the second album with Jive. And they were like, that first album did well. It got you guys out there. Now you got to go pop. We were like, huh? Fuck that. Go pop. That's when we started going independent. We sheltered each other from the pressure of going off that way. 
That ain't what we're here to do. We have always been trying to push the envelope and try different stuff, but it was never our intention to do anything outside of our lane. We were talking about 94, so that was our main experience with someone trying to force us to go pop, and we said no in 94, and we've been saying no ever since. So the album was actually meant to come out in November 94, according to a piece in the source, but the group needed to go back in the studio to refine some things in the words of A+. I do wonder if that's when the conversations with the label about going in that direction were happening. A+, explained the concept of the album, saying that's what hip-hop is. It's no man's land. It's nothing that anybody can cl- can claim. You can only get a piece of the, pl- the pie. Uh, that's not really what no man's land actually means. By very definition, no one can get a piece of the pie because... The disputing parties avoid it out of fear or uncertainty. I mean, it's not really what No Man's Land is. Um, it's a bit off point, but I think they explain the concept far better when the interviewer asks them what separates this album from their first. And they say, I think lyrically we just concentrated. We went deeper into ourselves. We're not slouching. We're not coming with some non-understandable shit, which is very concise. I don't think non-understandable is, is, is a word, but anyway. The album is increasing the emotional introspective depth from the first and doing it in a way that's still digestible. I think it's good, man. It is it's a solid album. Just another example of a major label trying to get a group who created a fan base on a sound and then they try to get them to change the sound. Now, why you would do that, I do not fucking know, but so many labels did it in the mid-90s. It's like they get you in and say, just create whatever album you want. And then after that, they're like, okay, now create the album that we want you to create. I don't know why they do it anyway. So yeah, that was it, No Man's Land. And then we we get Focus, which is their first independent album. Indeed, indubitably. Um, yeah, I think it's um, I think it's interesting watching uh, them go from Jive to this obviously hieroglyphics Imperium. Uh, stint uh, for the next two albums. I feel this album has something. I get, I don't know whether it's like the. I I do appreciate the fact though that they put the art, <laughs> they put the artist names in brackets in terms of who's involved. Um, on whatever track. I appreciate that. Yeah, I like um, that. I like it when groups do that. I really, I really appreciate that. It helps. Yeah. It helps. <laughs> it helps for me on this one, uh, definitely. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a solid piece of work. I, I, this is, this is the thing, right? Where they're so consistently decent, I can't make a distinction in terms of what sets them apart um because it has they they all have this very consistent essence and i feel uh very just solidly intrigued by all three of the albums so far and i guess in 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 how you were talking about uh maybe potentially the fact that the title track of their debut album could have been to their detriment. I feel like this consistency is to their detriment because I can't, I can't pinpoint like uh, any particular moments where I'm just like, this is great. This is absolutely amazing because it's all solid. It really is all solid. Um, if I, if yeah, it's just, it's, it's nothing to quite highlight here. Like there's no, there's no centerpiece single or anything like that. It's literally just, here's an album. 
and I guess that's kind of a breath of fresh air in some ways because I, you know, it's a, I don't, I don't actually listen to singles when they drop uh, most of the time. I literally just wait until the album drops. Um, I mean, sometimes when people drop a single and they don't put it on the album, I it's probably going to take me a while to actually listen to that single because I didn't realize it wasn't on that album. But yeah, I just uh, with that yeah tangent out that way. Um, it just yeah, it just feel, it just feels again just solid. <laughs> it's really really solid. I feel like I'm doing it a disservice by just going it's solid. Um, but it honestly is just how I come out, how I came out of the, listening to these three albums. Where I'm just like, this is just a solid vibe. They really nailed it. Uh, they really know what they're going for, and it's just, it's just clean. It's just clean, man. Like there's nothing that really offends me in any way. Um, I guess, uh, and it's not even. I wouldn't even count it as something like, um, how how people feel about like mediocrity, where you know you don't want to be. You either want to be, you, you never want to be in the middle, right? To use sports parlance, right? You never want to be in the middle. You either want to be tanking and like planning for the future, or you want to be contending for the title. You never want to be that middle team. You never want to be mid. And I'm not saying this is mid. It's a step above for mid. It's great, but I'm just like I, I can't, I can't, uh, I don't listen to a track, and I'm just like this is the standout for me. Like if you put a gun to my head, I could say so, um, but that would just be dishonest. Um, this is, you know, it's twelve tracks on this one, and uh, yeah, just it's it's fine, it's cool, it's it's really really calm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's interesting that I was talking to my friend yesterday about Wu Tang, and we were talking about like all the different MCs and all the different dynamics they had, and the little duos that were created, and. Yeah, the souls don't have that. They went the opposite direction. They all wanted to kind of like concise it and like all, you know, seamless at times. And a lot of people who talk about these albums, they, they like, I've read so many listener reviews and they're like, that's what it sounds like. It just, you know, there might be eight verses from four different MCs, but it's difficult to pick them. You know, it's difficult to be like, oh, that's A plus and that's definitely Festo and that's definitely Opio. I find that really interesting. Um, but yeah, they were. Their independent hieroglyphics Imperium Recordings was the label, um, and they said in Hip Hop DX in 2009, when we got dropped, we went an independent. At that time, the only cats that were doing it independent over here was maybe Stones Throw and ABB. We had no access to television or any sort, so that we just pre- produced some music and started working and building this circus of touring that is insane. Now the count is at 60 to 70 separate stops in the continental US and Canada. I remember tours when we were driving across tundras in Canada with our windshield cracking. So they that's that's a harsh, that's a drop. And a lot of artists don't accept that drop. You know, Jay-Z has a line on one of his songs on 2002, Blueprint 2. He's like, um, you fl- I fly over your bus in my private jet. And that's kind of what it was. You know, if you went independent, you had to drive. America is big. It is not small. It is difficult to get from coast to coast, from top to bottom. So you're driving around like that is a fucking grind. And Souls of Mischief are ready for that grind. Um, 
very intense. A plus told the same interviewer they were independent by choice, not by default. They would they turned down major labels because, and I quote A plus, we didn't want to fuck with them anymore. And you know, I love that. Focus didn't chart anywhere, and only a cassette and a vinyl record exist in physical form. Um, I found a few references to people saying they also released it online at the time. Souls of Mischief were, were well ahead of their competition in terms of being online. They had a website. Um, and again, in the late 90s, having a website was pretty fucking epic. Like nowadays, you're like, who the fuck even has a website? There was a period, right, in the 2000s where every artist would have a website and you'd go there with your little dial-up connection and they'd have like graphics and like things playing. It would take like 15 minutes for the fucking page to load. You'd sit there waiting for the pay. It was wild. So they had, and they, they sold this album through their website. Um, yeah, it's solid. It's solid without being outstanding. I think the production is was starting to wear for me a little bit. Maybe it's the influence of the late 90s. I'm not sure. But to me, it was just getting a little bit rote. Um, and then we got Trilogy, Conflict, Climax, Resolution. Uh, and hopping on the back of what you just said, this is where I start to kind of just get to the rote part of it. Yeah. Um, I will say, and it's interesting how I say that with an album that um, is probably the biggest departure from their from their sound previously. Um, where this one is very much murkier, uh, a lot darker, a lot more of that cloudiness that I mentioned before. It just uh, increasingly gets more cloudy as the albums go. Um, and you know, while I while I'm not too into that kind of side of it, I do feel like the album's just a titch too long. Uh, for me personally, um, I love the uh, sound science, uh, which uh, Babu and Evidence are, uh, uh, have a production credit on. Uh, really enjoyed that one. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, actually also uh, uh, sup sup subduer subdoda subdoda. I think I say so. Um, right after that, I didn't mind. I, I think it. Took a while for and this is very uh, this is very subjective, but um, it's it's kind of um, it kind of got to a certain point in the album where like I wasn't really into the beginning of it, and it kind of just got, it it got better as the album went on. Um, it's a slow it's a slow burner for me, um, and really ignites uh, down in the last third of the album. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a departure from their usual. Well, not from their usual sound. It's just it's it's, it's the jazz grooves and it's all that, but uh, it just has this again cloudiness to them. It's just a little bit darker, a little bit gloomier, um, and that comes through in the subject matter as well, um, and not just the production. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a it's an interesting, it's a, it's <laughs> it was an interesting, uh, I guess, change considering I was listening to all this in one in one particular day, and I was just like ah. Is it is it brings a fatigue to it, uh, which is more detriment, which is more uh, part of the fact that I was just listening to them back to back to back to back, um, and after this I needed a break. Um, but yeah, I feel like in as an individual album, it's clear the it's clear the uh, changes uh, they made there. Um, but yeah, you know, I feel like it could be for if you're in that type of mood, it could work for you definitely. Um, just wasn't for me at that time uh, because I was kind of expecting more of the same, <laughs> more of the same. And then here they go, just going dark. I was like, oh, hmm, don't know, don't know how I feel about it. But yeah, man. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, this actually um, began one of the more impressive commercial renaissances I think we've even seen on the podcast because after Focus kind of fell into oblivion, the group regrouped with their independent label and pushed their fourth album to number 37 on the US uh, independent chart. Cassette, LP, CD, digital copies, they all exist. Um, they managed to get an incredibly favorable review in the Chicago Sun-Times, which once again confirms that you know their fan base extended well beyond their own coast and this album was refreshing i felt it was you know i i just i liked the change up in sound um i felt like it drifted further towards the east coast and kind of allowed the group to sound a bit more venomous you know I, I, they've always sounded like great mcs but then when you put a bit of boom bap underneath them and and kind of just sharpen the production up a little bit just gives a new dimension to their vocals um there's not much to say about it on my end I, I just thought it was a super solid record that really announced the group into the 2000s at a time when most 90s acts were faltering hard but some were experiencing you know new peaks of success ghostface buster rhymes ll cool j even you know his 2000 album went number one it was his first number one album souls of mischief did that in their own way by redefining what independent success meant to them and that allowed them to tour even more widely and build their audience entirely organically. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that uh, Wyclef talked about in the cannabis episode. Focus didn't do very well. It didn't get picked up by many people. Not many people reviewed it. Not many people seemed to care about it. And as Wyclef said, that's when you start working. When it doesn't work, that's when you put in the hard work. And that's exactly what Souls did. And they recommitted to it. And then obviously um, they focused on hieroglyphics. So they got that to a level they got that independent label hieroglyphics imperium to a level where they could then focus on the group and the collective and that's what they did for most of the 2000s and i do think it's easier for me to speak on what each individual member was doing when we do the hiro episode i think that's the best space for it you know the group worked on outside projects uh, but they were more often than not related to the collective you've got to remember that pretty much everything was funneled into that you know it was a brand and they were trying to build that brand and you know, Trilogy was just part of that. These albums are part of that. And it's fascinating to see how independent artists go about releasing music and, and what they want to achieve out of it. You know, when you're on a major label, you get a massive advance. You've got to sell a certain amount of records to cover that. Um, you don't want to be paying back the label. So it's about that one album. It's about the success of that one album, the success of the singles, how well it does, how well it's reviewed, and whether they'll be bothered to give you more money for the next album. The Souls, as an independent artist, even though it was way more difficult because they had to tour themselves, they had to work out everything else, they had to do all the promo themselves, but it meant that a failure of an album didn't really matter that much as long as it still was true to their sound and it helped build and grow. Um, and they could have fucked up three or four times and they would have come back. You know, I, don't, I, I never felt like Souls were ever going to make an album that wasn't that great. Like, was it just not, you know, and... It's interesting when I talk to people about hip-hop and they talk about albums sounding the same and getting a little bit bored. It's very common in other genres for artists to just make the same fucking album for 30 years. They don't change. And, you know, it's not a negative thing. Um, yeah, I, I wonder about that with hip-hop. I mean, Future does it. Yeet does it. So I guess people do it in the mainstream. But yeah. Then we get Montezuma's Revenge in 2009. I think it was 2009. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I guess it has to be said that, you know, nine years uh, really uh, is, a, is a certain amount of time where you feel like there should be 
a major change or something like that because you know by the time this by the time this happened like you know uh far side broke up <laughs> tribe was pretty much broken up at this point as well uh you know it's it's cool honestly to see these guys continuing to uh to continue to work together and uh you know it's, it's all the better i think i feel i feel like i mentioned at some point Maybe it was during one of those retrospectives or another one, but um, I always was. There's sometimes where I think, you know, what if they just stuck together with it, and what if that person didn't leave, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there's plenty of groups where that's happened, because at this point, you know, most groups break up at some point, um, more than more than not, and you know. I guess you can consider Souls of Mischief as a really significant outlier in that. Um, I don't think any any of them have died. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, yeah. So you know, it's it's, it's honestly kind of cool. Um, the up to this point, uh, that you know, to this day, they're still doing it and uh, they're still together. Um, after thirty years, I feel like that's a very significant thing to mention. Um, on this particular front. Uh, I feel like there was a mild, I guess, return to form. Um, I didn't mind, again, it's kind of just in that solid territory where nothing really uh, slapped me in the face uh, in terms of just what what was said or how it sounded or anything like that. Um, there was a there was a lot of uh, a lot of skits uh, for this one, uh, which I was kind of just yeah, it was fine, it was lukewarm on, didn't really need them. Uh, personally, I will say poets um, really uh, came out to me. Probably not in the best way. Uh, I was I was really into just the. I don't know if it was a sample or whatever, but uh, just a woman talking about poems. I was just uh, I don't know. Just, I don't know what it was about. Just, I don't know. Maybe a delivery. Just really. Ah, don't know. Not into it. But um, yeah, past that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty solid. Uh, one one. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of cool. Uh, you got it. Uh, Hyro HQ with Delta Funky Homo Sapien on there as well. Uh, that was pretty good. Uh, wasn't it a lickety split? I guess. Um, that was probably the first uh, first track for me. I was just like, okay, don't know if I'm into this one. Um, especially just subject matter wise, wasn't really into it. Uh, but you know, then you got home game. Uh, which is pretty solid. Um, so yeah, it didn't it, it was it's okay. It's okay. It's not it's not up to the heights of the third one, um, and maybe not as uh, maybe not as consistent as the as the preceding albums. Um, but you know, it's they returned at least, and I feel like you know that's a, that's a that's a blessing in itself. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. You know, this album is actually quite interesting because it actually carried, carried quite a bit of prestige because the hieroglyphics continued to show their staying power as a collective in the mainstream and, you know, occasionally tapped in with the Billboard 200. I mean, Full Circle went number 155 and Dell Dell was popping up on Gorilla's albums. You know, that was tapping people in. Dell went on a fucking run in the early 2000s. Gorilla's, Deltron 3030, like he blew the fuck up. You know, that was 10 years after his debut. And so this funneled a lot of people into the hieroglyphics. And of course, and it was just like, 
it was that injection of new fans that they that souls really needed in the late 2000s um that came completely irrespective of what they were doing as a group uh it was just that they knew dell and dell blew the fuck up so prince paul came on producer um his ties to the group go back to jive signing them in the early 90s his goal for this record was to create the perfect follow-up to their debut album which is actually a pretty cool and interesting concept especially in 2009 where the scene was so far removed from 95 it couldn't be funnier like genuinely boom bap had exited the mainstream about a decade prior G-Funk was enjoying a bit of success, but not at the level of the South and Atlanta. Jazz rap was just nowhere at that point. Like, no one was doing jazz rap. Um, So an actual follow-up to their debut album to sound relevant in 2009 was just, yeah, it was interesting. It was just an interesting concept. And they recorded it. They, They disconnected themselves from the outside world. They apparently camped out in the wilderness with just their studio equipment for six weeks to record the album. Prince Paul told them that if he didn't like what he heard after the first two weeks, he would bail, but he stuck around. And in a 2011 Complex interview, he actually said he wasn't fully satisfied with it, but it was pretty good, which is okay, I guess. It was pretty good. Like That's a weird thing for a producer to say about an album that he produced. Yeah, it, was, it was all right. It was fine. Um, A-plus stated this about the Thailand concept. He said it started off being a working title because the street in the boonies that we were recording on was called Montezuma Road. It was just a working title. Of course, it got deeper than that if you know the story of the Aztecs and Montezuma's revenge is synonymous with how we are approaching this right now. We're going to make you shit on yourself. (laughs) I don't know what he's talking about there. We're here to show you you still have to be raw. You still have to be dope to do this. If you're not dope, you can't get by. Sorry. And then Opio confirmed... We referred to the space we're working in as Montezuma. We said that shit so much it just came into existence. Um, and it's compelling. You know, the, the critics pretty much agree with Prince Paul, AP, A+, and Opio. Um, the consensus rate, reading that the album strayed a little bit too far into nostalgia and finds the group a little bit lost in that 95 space. But honestly, maybe at the time in 2009 when you listened to it, you were like, eh, eh. But now I listen to it in 2023, I'm like, that's a cool concept and interesting, and I'm, I'm glad they did it that way. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. And, you know, their albums do sound similar, but they were clearly trying different things. And I've got to respect that. You know, I've got to respect that the fact that there's plenty of artists we've done on this pod where we're like, we get to the fifth and sixth album, we're like, oh, no, not another album. Like, this is, why do they keep doing the same thing over and over again? Are these f sides and g sides and m sides of their debut album that's what it feels like but um at least they were trying something yeah they, their albums sound similar but they were certainly trying something different um and then we get their most recent album there is only now now this one this one was interesting to me this one i had a lot of thoughts on i was just like mm, i am here for this collab uh adrian young um, mm. noted uh, producer. You like Asia. Uh Head of uh, co co-founder of Jazz Is Dead, uh, which I have mentioned a few times over the years, um, because they're consistent, just a uh, really fucking good, uh, just jazz. Um, if you go on uh, Adrian Young's uh, discography, um, is fucking nuts. It is. Um, and. <laughs> I just I feel like this is a really good uh just uh addition uh to the to the to the belt um that he has and uh you know with the involvement of obviously Ali Shah Muhammad um purely just in terms of uh having him as a radio host which I really liked by the way I love that motif um I I know 
uh, along with the phone call uh, skits, um, re- the radio one has been done to shit. Um, but I really like this. I really enjoyed uh, listening to this one and just having the light, just someone like Ali Shahi Muhammad do it. Um, I feel like it just really, it really, uh, really brought it home. And, um, you know, past that, Buster Rhymes on Womax Lemen, uh, Snoop Dogg on There Is Only Now. Uh, it was just, you know, it had to, it had to just, you know, whet the appetite a little bit and to see like, mm, okay, where's this going to go? And um, I feel like this is, genuinely different from all their other albums um and that's i think uh partly because of adrian young um helming the production and uh obviously having the likes of ali shahim hamid buster rhymes and snoop dog on here um it's different a lot of this is different a lot of it is uh new flavors and um i like it it's really refreshing it's a really solid listen and um i just respect the I respect the change, um, like you said. Um, I respect the change uh, to something that's not trying to be a sequel of their first album, but actually just being instead just probably their most unique out the bunch. Uh, will I say it's better than, you know, 93 Till? Probably not, but it's definitely the most unique out the bunch, um, and that's uh, that has to stand for something, I guess. Yeah, you got to respect them for doing that. I mean, you know, they've tried it on both albums. Prince Paul on Adrian Young, like it's, it's you know, it's respectable. And it went uh, top twenty on the rap albums chart, top thirty-five on the R and B albums chart. I'm not sure who the R and B is, but Souls have you know they're not been getting mainstream love, but their independence and dedication to touring meant that every album was leveling them up in terms of scope and concept and execution and promotion. As Charlie said, his time's tapping in with him and. You know, this was post Magna Carta Holy Grail credits. He was incredibly high demand that year. Delphonics, Jay-Z, Ghostface, Prodigy, Talib Kweli. Um, very next project there is only now is Souls of Mischief. And once again, the producer got made bold statements about the sound of the album. He said, it's a project that if somebody misses the sound of 93 Till Infinity meets the low-end theory, meets D-Lar's Soul is Dead, if somebody misses that kind of sound, they'll happily hear this album because it goes back to that time, kind of like how the Ghostface album, 12 Reasons to Die, kind of went back to that time. And I love both styles of music back then, so I'm very excited. And he said of the concept, Souls of Mischief Mischief almost gets killed by some dude that was just crazy. And the whole album just starts off with this incident. Then it blossoms into these different stories that are a result of this volatile incident. And that's basically what the album is about. It's dope though, it's really dope. As far as stylistically, it's kind of like if Bob James and Herbie Hancock recorded with Q-Tip back in the day, you know what I'm saying? So he knows all the right things. He's got everything right on his vision board. He's got this beautiful vision board with all these crazy concepts. And it's tight, man. The concept is tight. Like even the guests inhabit bit part characters in the wider story. Buster Rhymes has a character. um, Scarab has a character. And that's dedication. And, you know, that they could link these one-off narratives into the overarching theme is, is impressive. And... I don't think it hits you as hard as iconic concept albums from like Master Ace or Kendrick. You know, it's not in that vein. Um, but it does a solid job of keeping me tapped in, at least, into the underlying message. Um, and that was nine years ago, and we haven't got an album since. Uh, there was a solid interview with Rock the Bells back in 2022. They asked why the group has attracted such a loyal following from their fans. Uh, and it says, I think really it's just being regular, relatable people. I think for a long time, rappers were bigger than life by design. So they have big chains, all this crazy regalia. I love that word, regalia. 
you look at Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and all that, and we came like we walked in off the street with our vans and North Face or whatever. We were just busting. And it was more about skills in the music and being a regular person outside of that. So I really think that relatability, we're larger than life characters based upon our speech, not based upon our individual character. We're regular people. And I think when it comes down to us touring, us hanging out with our fans during and after shows, us traveling all over the world and connecting, I think that connection goes a little bit deeper because people can relate to us in a different way than they can a lot of rappers who are big on being rappers. And that interview, there's a section which possibly points to why the hiatus is extended now to nine years. And I did say at the start, I would circle back about friendship. Um, The interviewer asked how A-plus handled lockdown. And he said he managed to overcome drinking, smoking, and a lot of other drugs that he was participating in. And before he continues, the interviewer interjects, which at first I thought was very rude, um, but he clearly knew something. Maybe they had spoken about it before in an interview, or maybe he knew A-plus already. Um, or maybe it had been said in, in an interview before and I hadn't heard it. But the interviewer asked how Tajaya reacted to A-plus getting clean. And his response was really emotional and really powerful. He said, I'm super proud of him, not to get too deep into it, but sometimes it takes away from your overall, overall ability to enjoy your friend. It's gone in waves, up and down, not to use a surfing metaphor or whatever, but it's good to be on the upside now because I think we've got a lot more time and we're going to achieve a lot more as friends. And it's easier when somebody is there and happy and full and living their life how they're supposed to be living it. That's not on some judgment or anything. It's just from the outside looking in, watching how happy and how much more full I believe his life is now than a few years previous. We can't make a VH1 movie out of this or nothing. You know what I'm saying? It's regular life shit, but it's great to be able to chill and interact with the person that I've known his whole life. So the interviewer then says, you love him through all of it. Now, Tajai's answer is pure and it's really perfect. And I'm just going to end on this because to me, this is exactly what love looks like, whether it's friendship, whether it's romantic, partnership, family member, an animal. Um, If you love someone, you love them through their struggle and you can set personal boundaries and you can disconnect from them if you need to and keep yourself safe, but you don't attack them. You don't throw them away. You don't belittle them. You don't make them feel less than because they're suffering. And Tajai's response is just simply, and if not, that says more about you than the person who's going through what they're going through. You feel what I'm saying? It's just good to see my partner whole and present and excited. And to me, that's true friendship and it's 30 years of it. And that's the overarching message from souls. You know, they're down to earth and their love and respect of each other is evidenced by their enduring friendship. And to me, I feel like that's why so many people have connected with it and feel good about listening to them and feel good about being a souls fan because you can feel that emotional maturity in their entire discography. And that's not a common trait in hip hop. It's not common at all. Like toxicity is prized above pretty much everything else. I mean, right now, Future's at the top calling himself the most toxic person in the world. Like, And that's celebrated. That's just, to me, that's stupid. And I think it's interesting that they started when they were just teenagers. When they were teen, when I was a teenager, I was probably more in line with Future. I was like, yeah, toxicity, like be a dickhead. That's great. But they had this, you know, they understood this all the way back then. And now that I'm 34, I read a quote like that. I'm like, that's fucking perfect. That's how I want to live my life. But they had that throughout their whole career. And that like, I think that's why people are so loyal to them. They, they picked up on that. And it's not a common trait. And that is their unique selling point. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I feel on top of that, um, having a having a collective and labeling hieroglyphics is you know i remember when we talked about um obviously when we talked about tv a couple of weeks ago um 
and obviously prior as well, prior conversations. And we always talk about um, just how how it's just how it's just gone right in the past ten or so years, fifteen, twenty years, right? And you know, we never praise the likes of you know Pyro, uh, Stone's Throw, Rhyme Sayers, mm. uh, Jazz Circles, International Anthem. Uh, I can't think of anyone in Britain, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's it's interesting of how you know these labels are over twenty years old, and they still keep it going, and their artists still keep it going, and they all seem you know hungry still, and uh, it's really good to see. And I feel like Souls of Mischief is really a absolutely sublime example of all of that, um, and just having that. Uh, collective bond is really special, and I can imagine. Um, as I'm not like, I've I've not become like the biggest Souls of Mystery fan over the week. Um, but I can objectively just look at it, and from you know the story we've given today, is just uh highly respectable to, and actually kind of uh not the norm. <laughs> like, like all this positivity is not the norm. Um, in hip hop circles, uh, you know, there's either a group member that's dead, or there's, you know, or the whole group's just broken up and they don't talk to each other, or, you know, two of them broke off to do their own thing and whatever. So it's, it's always something, it's always something either at, at minimum bittersweet and at worst just depressing. Um, but here's Souls of, Souls of Mischief with a very solid catalogue, um, a very consistent catalogue. And um, they're still going. And uh, that's just, again, highly respectable that they still do it. And uh, they still do it with just complete, seemingly complete humility. So, outstanding. Shout out, Souls. Shout out, Souls. Lighten up, Ben. Go. So, f- well, the first one is because while I, was, while I was doing the pod, I was just reading. I've got this, like, Cookie Crew tape right here, right? Yes. On the front of the oh. tape they say including as if like these are the big songs like it it also includes these massive singles they've listed every single song on the track list they say including all 12 tracks now that is fucking confidence and i fucking love it it's like including all these great that's the entire album (laughs) i never realized that before but the the true lighter note the other story is so i haven't told this story before so I have a car, I bought it in 2013, it's a 2013 Kia Cerato, and it's, I fucking adore it, it is my favorite thing in the world, we have spent so much time together, and it's got this engine knock in it, it's got this like ticking noise, and it's terrifying to me because I don't have a lot of money, and I don't want to fucking buy a new car, Or so I went to my mechanic, got it serviced, I thought it was going to cost me thousands of dollars, he charged me 500 bucks, and he said to me, look, we could take the entire engine apart, but you should sell the car because these engines fail. They fail, they seem to fail quite a lot. There's a big problem with them. Kia hasn't done anything about it. So he's like, it will fail most likely in the next two or three years, so you should sell it. So I went home and I thought about the possibility I could sell the car to some poor unsuspecting person who's probably poor, poorer than me even because they're buying a fucking secondhand Kia that's 10 years old it's got 100,000 k's on it that did not appeal to me the other option was keeping the car and waiting for the engine to fail and losing $11,000 that also did not appeal to me 
The other option was taking it back to this guy and he said, I'll try and fix it, but it's gonna cost you three or four grand to figure out what the problem is in the first place. And it's most likely the engine. So you're gonna need a new engine and that's gonna cost five, six, seven. So it was gonna cost me like $10,000 to fix. So I was completely fucked. So for about a month, I'm just sitting there just like, what am I gonna do? I stopped driving my car, drove my mum's car everywhere. I just like this, it was really affecting me. And I came home last week from my friend's house and I had a letter from Kia. And Kia have recalled my specific car and they're gonna replace my engine for free. And it is such a random fucking occurrence, bro. Like for me to hear this ticking noise randomly, it started in January, to get it checked out by a mechanic and then a month later, Kia just like, yep, bring it in on the 20th of September. We'll just put a new engine in it for free. I'm like, that's the biggest win. I told Charlie this story. That's the biggest win I've ever had in my entire fucking life. Genuine, my life's been shit house. I haven't had many good moments. This is a great moment. I'm so stoked. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm going to get a new goddamn engine. Anyone who's driven a secondhand car, you get a new engine? Mm. Bro, that's a, that's a new <laughs> lease on life. That's the greatest thing ever. So, oh, fucking, I'm so stoked. I'm absolutely stoked. Yeah. Maybe I should... Um... Maybe I should just hit up Samsung and try and get a new laptop. See if it, see if, uh, see if the luck is rubbed off. Rubbed Do it, off. man. Uh... Say, look, there was a hair in my laptop, and now you need to replace it, or like <laughs> it cut my finger, or some some bullshit. Make up I some mean, shit. Yeah, yeah, could make something like that. But the, I mean, bro, the overall issue is the fact that my the dude I got to potentially replace it said like he literally can't get into it because there's like some special glue on it yeah glue that's what i always hear when i try to get in my laptop they're like special glue understood why glue my laptop don't glue it screw it i've never understood why tech companies are so are so not into just the concept of repairability oh you know why really fucks me off you know why i I still remember uh, like um my favorite phone relative because Obviously, the phone I have is the best phone I've had so far. Um, but my favorite phone back in the day, well, not even back in the day, it was like 2015, but uh, the LG G7. Not just because um, I could say G7 and also think of a plane, um, but because it was the last, it was probably the last like mainstream brand, quote unquote, phone that actually had a removable battery. By that point, oh, yeah, pretty no. much every brand had non-removable battery. So I had an S, a Galaxy S4 before that, and that was a removable battery um, to its detriment somehow because um, every time I bought a new battery for it, um, it immediately like inflate the fucker. Um, oh, so, mine yeah, used to do that, that too. That, I don't know why yeah. I did that, but uh, it was old, like two, mid-2000s phone, but it used to do the same thing, like blow up in the phone. Yeah, it just it just it'll just bloat like and it would I could I could see like the back of my phone just like popping out a bit because it's so chubby, um and like I literally get a new one and then in the space of a week or two it's just it's just doing it again I'm just like okay it's clearly a phone issue but anyway, um removable batteries I feel like it's just one of those things I'm just like and I don't know why I'm ranting about this but that's a uh, thing but I'm here now and it's a it's a, it's legit like I, you know. I have a Samsung Galaxy S21 right now. I like it. I really enjoy it. It's a great phone. Um, but, you know, at some once, point, once the battery, battery goes, just do some do some random shit. It's game what over. am I going to do? 
Yeah. Game fucking over. Get a new phone. Like it's yeah. just, it's it's so fucking annoying. It really is annoying. While I'm not the per- while I'm not a person that uses everything down to the last drop and tries to get everything fixed until like it cannot be sorted again. That's me. Uh, I'm admittedly not great on that front, right? But I would like the idea of repairability <laughs> to not have special glue, quote unquote, on my laptop to the point where my my dude can't even literally open the fucking screen and just replace it. It don't make fucking sense. It really doesn't make sense to me how they would just, hey man, fucking first party it if you want, whatever, but make it repairable. And I guess that's why, because if people learned how to repair shit, then they won't need to buy anything anymore. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> capitalism's back, back in the game. Who knew? But that was uh, something. Always make it back to capitalism. That was something we learned <laughs> about in at university because I did marketing, and you know we had the same. Uh, that sounds like the worst course on earth. It was terrible, and we, you know, we had the same. <laughs> Just, we had we had the same dryer. <laughs> you for, could only get worse if you said sales. <laughs> I mean, I used to work in sales. I know what it is, bro. Like, it, so they they. They they oh, had this thing like we noise. we had the same dryer for thirty years we had the same microwave for like forty years, thirty years twenty years something like that, and these companies weren't earning enough money they weren't selling enough new products so they what they called was they called it planned obsolescence there was an entire fucking subject about it where it started in white goods where they would make sure that your washing machine would only last 10 years. Then you need a new washing machine. But people got really pissed off at that and annoyed at that. So now what they do is they say, yeah, you can change everything. You can repair everything, except you can't put a new battery in it. And you're like, okay, I need a new battery. And they're like, buy a new phone. That's why I bought the laptop I bought because the the HP Pro Book I can like go into it and you know because I'm the person you talked about. I'm literally wearing the jumper I was talking about the other week with a new zip on it. And mum said to me, it's got a hole in the arm. Why don't you just buy a new jumper? And I'm like, mum, it's just a little hole. It's oh. not that bad. Oh, like, I'll be fine. Whoa, that hole is large. What the fuck? It's just, it's not that bad, bro. Come on. Who cares? Sometimes you put it, sometimes you put it on and your hand goes through the hole instead of the sleeve. Oh Come on, bro. I'm fucking. How do you think I have all these records behind me? Because I wear fucking clothes with holes in them. What's wrong with that? That is so fucking hilarious. I didn't expect the holes to be that big. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's not I that bad. It's like a thumb hole in it. Not like the whole fucking sleeves. It started on. as a thumb hole. Bro, but it's hanging on for dear life. No wonder you got it fucking rolled up, you. Crap. what the fuck is that oh my but see God. that's I the thing you about to say i was literally about to say i've got a hoodie that i've had like since i was fucking 13 like there's there's like house parties from, from when i was like 15 that has me wearing that exact fucking hoodie it's from a brand that don't even fucking exist anymore <laughs> right and i was like yeah i've got i've got a hole in that like holding a couple holes in the sleeve right and then you just bring out that fucking it's a hole. Gash! Like, what the hell is Bro, that? This phone That's is not even. Wild. I didn't buy this. Fo- I don't buy phones. I never buy phones. I just pick this. This phone's from 2018. It's a fucking Oppo. It's been around for five years. I want to keep oh. it till 2023. I'm gonna keep everything oh, yeah, I have until pretty- it just disintegrates. I've got shirts that are literally just like threadbare. 
I don't know. I, I like it. It's a vibe. It's a it's a thing. You'll see when I, I come mean, to yeah, England. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know what I mean? Like I prefer to have something of that nature instead of just like buying jeans that are just straight up ripped from the beginning. Yeah, that's silly. I I, I prefer. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have like you know worn worn clothing, you know that's that's a that's an aesthetic. I get it. It's a style choice at some point. And it's cool, right? I, I I respect it. I've got a couple of kits in there where I'm just like, you know, I've had it for a decade and, you know, it's, it's weared out to shit. But I fuck with it still. It's just not, it's a cool shirt or jacket or et cetera or jeans. Um, but, yeah, it's a... I pref- yeah, I prefer to have, like, weathered clothing that is actually, like, you know, done the mile done the mileage yep. instead of just, like, buying ripped jeans just for the fact they're ripped jeans. Like, yep. give me some jeans. Like, I, I have some on, on the back of me right now. They're a solid pair of jeans. They might wear out at some point. Um, I'm sure they will. But, you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the aesthetic, right? And, you know, just you, you can wear you can wear worn clothing and you can have a crap phone for 10 years. And that's and that's cool. If it, if it lasts, that's yep. great. Uh, my shit just doesn't last for some fucking reason. Yeah, you got bad luck. It just does my fucking night. Um, but, yeah, it's a weird conversation on repairability. And, um, oh, gosh, that, show me that sleeve again. It's not that bad. I understand how, like, bro, I nearly screamed how large it is. Oh my gosh. Bro, it looks like a dog just ripped it to shit. But if I cut that off completely, what difference would it make? Like, it'll get to a point where I'll just cut the hem off and I'll re hem it and it'll just be the exact same jumper. Like, this jumper will last me another five years, genuinely. It, it it yeah it just looks like a makeshift like UFC glove like <laughs> 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 oh I nearly screamed how large it was I was like what the fuck <laughs> yeah you reacted I was about to make a case for like oh yeah 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 I've got a hoodie like that yeah yeah and then I was like oh I was like not like that fuck not like that <laughs> Jesus man looks yeah, like man. a bomb went through it that's my thing that's my thing that's what I do so, nowadays we'll I spend we'll money on fin- cassettes we'll finish there. Fucking hell, 90 minutes, Jesus Christ. All right, let's <laughs> finish there. Um, I've got a carnival to get to tomorrow morning. Um, but yes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth In Podcast Network, this is Digger Digits. I've enjoyed the episode. I've been trying to say the Fifth Element. We've been Carter if you pop numbers. We hope you have a good week. We should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, peace. Digging in Digits is produced by me and Ben Carter. The show is edited by me. Music for the show is a piece of video games by bonus points. Thanks to your music for the ability to use. Socials for filament, hip hop by numbers, bonus points, and your music will be in the full show notes, as well as the names of projects reviewed wherever you're listening. This has been a 5 EPM production. Thanks for spending time with us. We shall see you next time on Digging in the Digits.